Welcome to Zero Trust 30. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and this is the show that helps you make sense of the cybersecurity sensation that is Zero Trust. I am joined today with uh, Jim Anthony, who's our Senior Vice President of Cybersecurity. Jim has over three decades of experience uh, helping organizations design and implement their Zero Trust architectures. Um, Jim, give us a good hello so we know that you are there and human. Hey, George, you make me sound like an old geezer. Oh, wait, yes. maybe I am. There you go. Well, he can't see you. So, And then we also have Michael Friedrich, who is the Vice President of Federal Technology Strategy and Innovation. Uh, Michael is also overseeing kind of federal technology needs and strategy and innovation related to zero trust and helping solve complex problems for federal organizations and their zero trust architectures and journeys. Uh, he has deep engineering knowledge around co-location, virtualization, cybersecurity, zero trust, uh, networks, networking, and hosted solution designs. That was a mouthful. Michael, why don't you go ahead and also say hello so we know you are here in human. Greetings one and all. Well, thank you both for uh, for joining us today. We've got an exciting topic. We're going to be addressing zero trust as it relates to the cloud. Uh, we've got about 30 minutes. You know, that's a, that's a short amount of time to tap, tackle a very big topic, um, but we're going to do our best. But before we get into the meat of the conversation, we like to have a little bit of fun, do an icebreaker. It's a game called What's Bugging You? So Jim, let's go ahead and start with you. What's bugging you? Well, uh, what's bugging me at the moment is that it's uh, it's a little chilly. I live in San Diego, and the temperature is usually in the 70s, and right now it's in the 50s. You uh, you can't complain living in San Diego about the weather. It's I'm just complaining not today. Just there. give me one day. You got one day. This is it. All right. This is it. Anything cybersecurity related that's uh, that's irking you? Yeah, there are a few things that are that are irking me. Um, uh, you know, I, I could I could put my uh, my corporate hat on and talk about how people refuse to look at new ways to solve old fashioned problems, but um, but let's dive a little deeper than that and get beyond some of that. Some things that are bugging me, if you think about um, some of the issues that the world has faced in the last couple of days, uh, not you know not not bringing them to the forefront, but these issues sort of exaggerate some of the problems that the world is facing in terms of using old-fashioned ways of keeping bad guys out of your environment. Um, happy to say that we, uh, you know, we, we came out of this latest situation with uh, compromised code uh, looking pretty good, honestly, both from a product perspective as well as our customers being pr protected perspective. So the idea of zero trust being an overplayed word and an often overused word or concept is I'm on board with that, right? But tuning out, looking into the world and looking into the market to figure out new ways to solve old problems just because there's a zero trust tag associated with it, that's what's bugging me. You got to get past the tag and look at the details of the technology and look at what people are saying under the covers to understand really what this thing is, is all about. You got to get past the, the nomenclature and get to the meat of the, the matter. That's a great answer. Mr. Friedrich. What's bugging you? Well, first, that I'm not Jim's neighbor. I mean, I'm still living here in the Northern Virginia area, and it's it's heading toward winter. So the fact that I'm not his neighbor living in San Diego and what could be seen as heaven on earth, that bugs me. Long, long ago, wanted to move to Southern California. But in a cyber front, I think in the government space, what's bugging me most is still watching the government buy siloed solutions. 
you know, it's an ongoing conversation I keep having with them on a constant basis of please stop buying silos. Please stop telling me you can't integrate things. If you don't know how to do it, then let's have that conversation because it's just, it just keeps happening. And what it's resulting is things like log 4J, as Jim just mentioned, it, it proliferating, right? If you have a true zero trust mentality and you're really thinking about how systems should be integrated, this shouldn't be happening at the rate it's happening. So that, that's what's on my mind right now is, you know, stop asking me if our code is, is safe from it and start asking me, you know, how do, how do I stop having this become a recurring problem, right? Whether it's solar winds or this next one, right? Start adapting a true zero trust mentality where systems are built to be talking to each other and stopping this. Yeah, that, that's what's irritating me on my mind right now. No, those are those are both very valid annoyances and and, and common themes on the podcast of um, you know doing something. You can't do nothing. Obviously, that's not panning out well for for people. But also, I think there's this paralysis by analysis problem. Um, you know, and that doesn't, I think, Jim, to your point, it, it doesn't help when there is so much noise around particular buzzwords. We're really cutting through that and getting at the core of what's your modernization strategy related to security. Whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter. There has to be some kind of journey that you're going on to do something different because the world looks a lot different than it has over the past 10 years. And it's going to keep getting different. I mean, wouldn't it be great to wake up to the next news alert about solar winds or the next news alert about Log4j and have the confidence and the understanding of, okay, yeah, I need to go do some checking. I need to go looking around, but I feel pretty confident that what I've, what I've implemented so far on this zero trust journey, what I've implemented is providing a level of protection. That's why I started this journey in the first place. I don't have to react the way I traditionally needed to react to these issues, um, I can take my time, I can look at it in a more methodical manner because frankly, those compromised things, they might be in my environment, but they're off the public internet. They're not accessible to the outside world. And that's that's part of what this thing is all about. Yeah, and ideally they're also isolated. So if there is compromise, it's, it's con in, in a controlled area and you know exactly what area to focus on. 100%. Awesome. Well, I think this is a good transition to kind of go into the topic for today. So like I said earlier, zero trust for cloud, very broad. We're going to kind of look at it through the lens of, you know, what is a walking stage versus a, I mean, sorry, a crawling stage versus a walking stage versus the running stage. So again, everything in technology, zero trust is a journey. Zero trust for cloud is going to be a journey. Even just cloud adoption within organizations is going to have varying degrees of maturity within it. And so it's not a, a one-size-fits-all answer at all. And we're going to kind of break down um, categorically, you know, again, the, the, the crawl, walk, run stage. So moving workloads to private, public, multi-cloud environments, cloud-native, traditional, um, this is not new. We've definitely seen an, uh, accelerated transformation efforts and, and greater uh, reliance on cloud adoption as part of the pandemic, um, you know, with this need for speed related to the cloud also comes a need for security uh, that doesn't kind of get in the way of some of the core value propositions of moving to the cloud. It's always that trade-off between speed and convenience. Security hasn't kept up with IT. Um, and ultimately, we're going to look at what, you know, zero trust for cloud offers significant amount of benefits how do you get started? You know, what are the different architectures within the cloud? What are the different benefits of zero trust and how do they fit into the different stages of the maturity model? But before we even get into the topic of zero trust, I'd like to have you guys just answer just the basic question, right? Of 
what are the most pressing challenges organizations are facing as it relates to cloud environments and, and securing those cloud environments? I don't know, Michael, if you want to kick that off for us and we'll go and, sure. you know, we'll take it from there. Sure. I mean, I think the hardest problem we run into in the government space is honestly awareness of their identity management and their workloads, right? You sit down and you talk to these CIOs and these CTOs of these agencies and they're so sprawling, their users are so dispersed, they don't have a good idea or inventory of who they all are, where they are, what they're using. And the result is getting a zero trust conversation almost has to go back to the beginnings of of almost a hosting conversation, right? Which is who are they, where are they, and what are they? And that is the beginning of a zero trust journey in the first place, right? So to me, when I talk to them, crawl is really just that that level of, you know, what is your end goal look like if it's the cloud, if it's a hybrid design, you know, let, let's first identify that, right? That's that first stage because I can't micro segment, I can't do anything else if I can't define where it all is and who they are. And to me, I think that's that's the hardest part in this conversation. So to me, that's almost the crawl stage. Is it's great that you want to go to the cloud but how you go to the cloud, right? Are you really prepared for what that means, right? I mean, to me, that, that, that's that gotta be the beginning. And Jim, I, I would imagine you see this in, in the commercial world also. You know, just thinking broadly about uh, people that I talk to in the industry and, and uh, you know, knowing where they're coming from, I think there's a lot of little issues that, uh, that, that companies are dealing with today. I mean, first and foremost, you, you think about cloud and the promise of rapid application development and, and rapid um, device deployment and things like that. And that, that flies in the face of cybersecurity, right? I want to enable my development teams to move as quickly as possible. I'm going to enable them to use the cloud. Go, go, go. Write that code. Test that code. Do the things that you need to do so that we can get these applications created and published and out the door. Oh, but wait a minute, I need to slow you down because I need to do some cybersecurity stuff along the way to make sure that the code you're writing is good and the way you're accessing it is good and so on, right? You're not exposing anything to the public internet. These kinds of things come into direct contradiction with each other, right? I need to move fast, but I also need to be secure. Um, So companies are looking for ways to do that, right? And if you take that idea and actually move it in a slightly different uh, tangential way, uh, and start looking at the skills that it takes to actually leverage uh, the cloud platforms and implement cybersecurity technologies there. It's really different than the traditional data center. And so now you end up, companies are ending up building multiple teams, uh, some that are focused on cloud and others that are focused on traditional data center space. They're not different. They don't have to be different. Uh, you just might perceive them to be a little bit different. But the way that you secure them is fundamentally the same. Um, and, and you need a technology, you need a, an approach or a stance that actually enables you to treat them the same way. And this is the thing that, you know, if you put your head in the sand because you've heard the buzzword too many times, this is the thing that you miss, right? You miss there that there are concepts and technologies out there that help you marry these things together. And I think there's even a third angle that you can talk about. The idea that traditionally different departments within a company that have some level of cybersecurity focus have been so siloed from each other that having them come together now to implement a fully featured zero trust solution is just mind bending for them. The idea of getting your network security people to work with your desktop support people, uh, to work with your cloud application development teams to have a cohesive approach to cybersecurity is something that, that 
blows people's minds, right? I, I don't know how to get these teams to come together. I don't know how to, uh, how to get them to understand that everybody has a part in cybersecurity. And so those are, those are just three little angles that I think about all the time when I talk to prospects about, you know, where are you, what are you doing, and how can I help you solve some of those problems? Inevitably, that leads to the crawl conversation. You know, how can I implement something that helps to address all three of these different vectors that is least disruptive as possible, but biggest bang for the buck, right? How can I do things like uh, take, take those applications and those, all of those complicated firewall rules, how can I simplify that? Uh, whether it's in the cloud or it's in the private data center, how can I build secure encrypted pathways for people to reach all these various platforms without them necessarily knowing or caring how they're doing it. And they're getting a high, high level of performance, a high level of re- reliability without knowing the, how the, the, uh, the pipe work is actually laid underneath that's providing that connectivity, right? Things like that start to come into play. Jim, I'm kind of curious. You hit on a theme there that's impacting crawl in the government. I'm kind of curious from a commercial perspective if you see the same thing. From the government perspective, we've had brain drain for years going on. And I'm kind of curious if the great resignation is having the same effect in your world, right? I mean, we're seeing the lack of, of, of the knowledge impacting the ability to even begin the crawl. It is to some degree, Michael. That's a good observation. Um, we are we are seeing, call it changes in personnel midstream, right? So, you know, we have conversations within an account uh, with a certain set of people and, uh, you know, a week or two or three weeks later, there's new players that are brought in that are recently, you know, brought in off the street, or there's old players that we talked to the first time around that actually have left and gone to other places. So yeah, there's some of that that's coming into play. I think that that's actually a good thing. Uh, it's, it's fresh eyes, it's fresh ideas, fresh concepts that are being brought to the table. Uh, and ultimately that's going to lead in new and interesting ways for an old fashioned uh, company to solve problems. Right? So I, I think ultimately that whole brain drain concept is a temporary bad thing, but a long-term good thing. I've never heard that statement before. Brain drain. Think of it as the corporate collective knowledge slowly disappearing because people are leaving the organization. Yeah, that makes sense. And in government, what you see, George, is you see folks leaving government, going to private sector. You know, they've earned their their quals, right? Now they're going and they're getting bigger paychecks in private sector or they're going to consultant jobs. So you lose a lot of that inherent internal knowledge inside the government. And as the systems have gotten more complex, and as Jim said, Going to cloud is not simply going to cloud. That knowledge base is getting lost, and it, it does create complexities in the in the the thought process of, of big new ideas, right? So, uh, you know, in, in the in the non government world right now, that's showing itself a little bit, as Jim said, in the Great Resignation and turnover in government. This has been happening now for years, where they're losing their best and brightest to to the commercial world. I think there's a common theme across all of that, which is the human component behind securing cloud environments, and right? And that's the, the, the individual users accessing uh, cloud resources now could be anywhere, coffee shop, home, airport, in the office, doesn't matter, right? They are remotely accessing these cloud environments, and they are susceptible to what we've seen in terms of an influx of phishing attacks and really targeting individuals um, but then there's also the human component around to, to, to what you guys were talking about is the the misconfiguration of cloud environments, the lack of uh, either skill sets or, or time and due diligence to focus on locking down cloud environments without impeding 
that uh, that speed and 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 delivery that the cloud promises. Um, so you know, so outside of the human component, you know, what about what about technologies, right? You know, what are the technology challenges? I'm obviously putting a bit of a target on the back of the VPN here related to how people are connecting into these different cloud environments. Are there challenges there that people need to start rethinking? 100% yes, right? Um, a, lot of, a lot of older fashion technologies will, you know, they're siloed in terms of the functionality that they provide. And, you know, let's be honest about VPNs people put them in a cybersecurity bucket because there's the word encryption associated with um, some of the functions that VPNs provide. But they're not really cybersecurity uh, tools at all. They're really just connectivity tools, providing a pathway for somebody to go from point A to point B. Uh, beyond that, you know, point B is wide open to them uh, in most cases, right? And if you've got a point C and a point D and a point E, you still got to go through point B to get there. And so there's new ways to solve problems like that without introducing extra hops and without paying for double and triple bandwidth because you're routing all of your user traffic through one central hub, if you will. Um, the internet is far more ubiquitous and far more reliable and far more performant than it was 20 years ago when VPNs were first you know, being utilized. And so the concept of being able to use more generic, more public-oriented connectivity is a concept that a lot of companies are embracing. A lot of uh, a lot of products are embracing, um, and frankly, allowing your users access to your various data centers, whether you're physical data center-oriented or cloud-oriented or a combination. Uh, most likely, everybody these days, every company has multiple data centers, even if it's nothing more than just a physical data center and some SaaS-based applications. They've got multiple places where their applications are deployed and multiple things that they've got to worry about. So, so granting your user access to those different destinations, but using an optimized pathway to get there and still being able to control the encryption levels and things like that is really important. And you can do that without using a VPN now. And so there's there's uh, other ways to solve that problem that uh, that newer technologies just go far above and beyond anything that a VPN could have ever done, including right out of the box with a simple implementation, getting this multi-tunneling encrypted concept set up, uh, getting extreme logging set up so that you can actually see what people are doing, what destinations they're using on the insides of those networks, uh, and begin to understand what that usage pattern looks like. That's part of what that crawl concept really looks like to me. In the government space, the VPN problem is kind of twofold, George. First, you know, we have a scale, right? You know, these agencies can have hundreds of thousands of employees distributed at a, at a countrywide issue, right? So when you're talking about continental United States, you, know, you might have an agency with 200,000 employees being distributed, right? Some have better connectivity, some have others. But the VPN limitations have created such a choke point for the government that the pandemic just it shined the brightest light on, right? They had no good way out of these problems. So not only did it leave them highly exposed, but highly unscalable, right? And you're talking about devices with, you know, one gig throughputs versus a technology more like ours where it's, you know, nine gig throughputs, right? So you just get to scale and ability to handle what users should be talking to and distribute that access. It's just to scale the problem the government is still discovering its way through, but it goes even deeper, right? Because the government is still trying to figure out how they apply access even into their IoT realms, their SCADA realms. Their problems cover everything you can think of and then even goes into advanced military issues of, you know, hey, 
I've got guys in silos sitting in the middle of nowhere that need connectivity. And guess what? It needs to be reliable. It needs to be secure. And the guys who used to sit in NORAD or somewhere else, well, guess what? They may be home now trying to come in on a VPN, trying to connect to those resources. So it's very latent. It's not well scaled. Their problems just go on and on, right? So for them to make that move to a more distributed system that allows them that architecture, it's a it's a big leap for them in, in thought process and technology. But it's in, in all reality, when you break out, when you just break down the use cases, it's no different than if you're talking to a you know Fortune 100. They have the same problems. They just don't have it on that global scale for that user base, right? But it's still got to get to that same point Jim was talking. Well, Michael, you, you actually kind of brought up an interesting topic that sort of leads into that walk phase, right? So the idea that a user could be trusted at one moment in time because they've got proper credentials, they're on the proper network, they're using the proper device. Okay, let's call that table stakes. That's part of what it is to be able to crawl into this new solution. But let's take it to the walk phase. What happens when that user takes that laptop, closes the lid, and goes down to the Starbucks, right? Your solution should understand that that, the, that user and that device, the context of it has now changed. And it might be less trustworthy, first of all. So I might want to adjust what that user has access to. But it might also be a scenario where I recognize that you're on a public internet. I might want to provide some extra level of security to you. Uh, by, say, maybe locking out all other inbound network connections to the device because I recognize you're not on a corporate network, right? And so this whole, the walk phase begins to implement some of these other advanced features uh, where you can, you can sense those kind of changes and you can make those sort of uh, security uplifts, if you will, when people walk off of the corporate network or they're using their corporate laptop at home or in a, in a public location. So now we're quickly getting into that walk phase. And that's just from the user perspective. There may be some other things around walk about, uh, you know, beginning to ratchet down application level access within the data center. Maybe you realize that the user is, you know, a member of a certain team. There's only two or three applications they need access to. Why would you need access to the entire subnet inside the data center? So let's begin to ratchet down that side of the equation as well. And now we're walking uh, instead of crawling. We haven't yet reached run, uh, but we're walking and we're getting a tighter level of security with the with new products. Yeah, and that, that journey is much the same, right? I mean, it's got to be understanding. Again, it's that where it is, now can I touch it? You know, where, who should be touching it, under what device, under what conditions, right? You know, I always say, you know, once you start thinking about, you know, people can die in my world, right? If the wrong information spills, right? So you always got to have that as your posture mindset. And, you know, in the commercial world, that would be, you know, somebody stealing all your information and shutting you down, right? So, I mean, if I was to summarize the crawl stage, I mean, I think, Michael, your, your point was 100% valid in that the first thing you have to do is really understand um, what your IT application landscape actually looks like and then be able to uh, focus on identity. And I think if, if you were to, to, to look at a lot of the research out there is a lot of people start zero trust implementation with identity, and that makes tons of sense. We're really having a user to resource type conversation um, resources being in the cloud, but then also, you know, recognizing that most organizations are not going to be 100% cloud-based. And they're also not going to be 100% in AWS. They could be across multiple clouds, which adds certain levels of complexity in and of itself. 
Um, but then as you walk, as you move into this walk stage, I think one of the points I wanted to touch on is outside of user to resource, zero trust connectivity, right? Enforcing the principle of least privilege, um, making sure that you evaluate identity and context as criteria for access. A lot of architectures nowadays have interconnection between services and workloads and the user isn't even, you know, in the conversation there. So how does that, what are the challenges related to that? And how does zero trust help with service to service like communication channels? Yeah. So thinking, so generically speaking, George, that's, that's a, that's another aspect of zero trust, right? So, and we think of it, I think of it more of as an East West conversation, uh, thinking of traffic moving within the data center in an East West fashion from server to server. Um, you know, you can you can start thinking about understanding specific use cases. Certain servers should have access to other certain servers. Uh, how do I control that access? Well, I can do it at the network level. I can I can segment my network. I can make it far more complicated than a big flat network and uh, control traffic that way. I can implement some technologies on the servers themselves to control that traffic. I might want to control. Uh, outbound traffic from one server and make sure that it can reach only ports and protocols of other servers on the network and, and restrict it from reaching anything else. So there's a way that you can do that. There's even other ways where you can make sure that the flow of information uh, is between servers is happening from an executable perspective, from a process perspective, uh, and any other process that attempts to access that server would be denied. Uh, so you can bind it by the process. There's lots of other ways that you can do it too, but it is definitely a part of the zero trust architecture. Uh, and this sort of leads into another area of, you know, despite what you may be hearing from individual vendors in the market that say, hey, we do it all, right? We, we are the zero trust provider. Well, that, that simply really just doesn't exist. Zero trust is so broad and so all-encompassing that there isn't one vendor that will give you everything uh, that that uh, you know is the full vision of zero trust as defined by Forrester uh, and ZTNA as defined by Gartner. So you really do need to dig deeper and look into different technologies and different capabilities. And from there, you quickly understand I've got to be able to do some integrations, right? So there there needs to be some way to tie these different things together so that I can actually understand what's going on in the environment and see that a trustworthy user might be actually doing nefarious activities. And, and so the conversation starts to, to starts to get deeper and deeper into different technologies along the way. I don't, I'm not sure if that's where you were headed with the question, but that's kind of where my head goes. Yeah, and I think even just to kind of bring it back to what you were saying in the what's bugging you question, right? You're talking about Log4j. You know, you start thinking about very aggressive IT organizations that are starting to just, you know, produce code at a rapid, uh, rapid rate you know, imp it, code, code with imperfections, code using open source technologies, sometimes just drag and drop into, into your, into your systems. Right. And, um, you know, that's, that kind of goes back into the whole speed and agility of cloud and DevOps and CICD, and then the ability to actually make sure that you can accommodate that rapid amount of development, but also make sure that whatever gets bought in is controlled and isolated. And I think that's, that's generally how I'm trying to, to tie these things together and bring it back to the log4j. Yeah, I mean, in general, if you think about app dev efforts, why would I need to reinvent the wheel when I could just go mm -hmm. and grab the, 
you know, grab the blueprints and the manufacturing process for the wheel itself and just use that. You know, that's effectively what we're talking about here, open source kind of solutions that you can pull yeah. into your projects and things. Well, how trustworthy is that code, right? Uh, how, how do we know that it's bug-free? How do we know that it's not been compromised by an outsider? Yeah, it's been generally pretty safe so far, but, you know, the SolarWinds victims would argue otherwise. The Log4j victims would argue otherwise. And so I think to some degree, you're not ever going to really eliminate, uh, let's face it, we're not, as, a, as an individual company trying to develop an application, even if it, that application is for commercial resale, they're not going to go in and recreate what Log4j did or does, given that they can just go pull it into their project, right, as an open source module. So I don't think that's ever going to go away. But, but what, so what can we do in, just in case we do pull something in that's compromisable or compromised? What can we do to make sure that it's as uh, inaccessible as possible and only accessible by the proper use? And, and that's kind of where some of the zero trust stuff comes into play. Let's make sure that the right people under the right circumstances get access to the right apps and let's lock everybody else out. And so to some degree, you've eliminated a large part of the problem just by implementing that kind of a statement. Uh, I, I only am allowing trustworthy known users under the right circumstances, meaning they're on the right networks and they're using the right devices and they're properly protected. I'm only letting those people or those users access these particular applications that might or might not have a compromised component in them. And so uh, you've eliminated a big bunch of it right there, right? Now, th that doesn't eliminate everything. So you still need to do your due diligence and, and, uh, and make sure that when you do understand there's a compromisable element that you, you address it uh, because, you know, you, you want to. And that's to my point back at the very beginning. Wouldn't it be great to be able to wake up and hear that next compromise, that yep. next big issue and wake up and say, you know what? I know that I'm using that component. And I am probably at risk, but I also know that that component is on a system that's off the public internet and nobody has access to it unless they're very specifically granted access to it. I feel pretty comfortable and confident about my current position. Now, I'm going to go do some research and figure out what I need to do about it. But it's not a crisis. Good answer. Let's get into the last section here of the run stage. And I think, Jim, you brought this up, um, but Michael, we'll let you kind of chime in here first. You were talking about integrations. Right. And so the way I look at it is, you know, the crawl stage, the walk stage, you've really tightened up your security controls. But there's a lot to be said with using modern solutions that help enforce zero trust just around operational efficiencies and really starting to accelerate things like DevOps uh, and CICD programs. And so, you know, as you've matured your, uh, your, your cloud journey and now your zero trust cloud journey, what are some of the operational benefits, integrations, automations that people can really start to latch onto um, that are outside of just your pure play security benefits. Sure. And actually, that's been a, a topic of great conversations between me and the government recently, where they've actually seen a number of CIOs and CTOs in recent panels and conversations I've had that have come to the conclusion, if you don't have a robust bi-directional, and we'll put bi-directional in quotes since that's not really a true technical term there. If you don't have a true bi-direction or near real-time robust API, don't come talk to me, mm. right? They're moving past the idea of even just DevOps. It's DevSecOps to them now. It's GitOps. It's the idea that they can store everything in their security as code and operate in that paradigm, right? So integrating their ticketing systems their alert management systems, even their AI systems, right? 
they want to create profiles, right? So like I worked with one agency that wanted an internal or external threat caught within 10 seconds and remediated automatically. Now, is that realistic given the, the, the data that they deal with and the amount of users? No, I mean, they're dealing with a, you know, every American's user's information of a personal nature, right? So, but the idea that they were setting goals that all of these systems had to be integrated and create an AI-driven risk profile and that your systems had to be able to automatically read that and react to that system, that speaks to a mature mindset of wanting zero trust just baked in. It's not a separate conversation. It's part of an architecture that's ongoing, it's living, it's breathing. And, and that, is a, that is the run stage to me, right? Which is I've now figured out who they are, where they are, what I've got to do. I've gone through all that maturity. Now I'm, I'm ready to be cloud native in that sense, right? Yeah. I'm ready to be very agile. And I stop caring whether it's serverless. I stop caring whether it's, you know, some cloud instance or, or a, you know, a data center hosted instance. I'm looking at everything as just code. And then I can get into that CID CD process you mentioned, right? Where it follows branch reviews and releases. And I stop worrying about, you know, where is this item tagged, right? That whole metadata driven universe now becomes a reality. And I can drive that not just into public hosted things, but private, right? And bridge them together, right? So I may have a Kubernetes air gap solution but I want it to talk to something in the cloud. Well, all of a sudden, zero trust can glue those together in a way that you couldn't do before. As Jim said, now you have two disparate things. One may be on the public internet, one may not, but I can bridge them together using zero trust as a concept that completely protects that one that's behind there, right? And so you, that to me is that run stage of where you get exciting with users, where they see the possibilities of setting it, letting it go, and letting the system learn and grow with you versus this, this feed and go, right? Feeding it and going along, that's kind of walking, right? And, and that's okay, yeah. but you've got to continue to realize that, that dream of running with that paradigm because walking just gets expensive. Where the costs start to bend the curve is when you start to run, right? When you start taking humans out of the equation, when the systems are doing that and you're monitoring them. So to me, that's that run stage. George, I think Michael's vision of uh, of run is is spot on. It's very forward looking and utopia oriented around uh, new application development and use of new technologies, and that's good stuff. But I think there's also a backward looking element as well. Uh, every organization out there, unless they just you know popped up yesterday as a new company, every organization out there has already been on a zero trust journey. I don't care how old or how stodgy they might be. They already have firewalls and identity and access management systems. And, and the way I look at it, I would think of those things as sources of truth on the network. Uh, they've already made investments in some technology, some platform. Uh, it might be an identity system. It might be an intrusion detection system. It might be uh, an XDR system, right? A detect and response system. The point is that every prospect every customer's network contains things out there that you can think of as a container of truth about a level of activity or a user or a device or an open trouble ticket for example right and so integration becomes a critical component of this run phase 
I need to be able to, to do this zero trust thing. I need to be able to get down the road on this zero trust journey, but I, do, I don't want to trash the investments I've already made. How do I take advantage of those things and the knowledge that they have or the things they contain and use those as part of this zero trust architecture? And, you know, we quickly get into API calls and understanding what those truths are and how I might be able to use them to make decisions about who should have access to what and under what circumstances. And that's that's another critical component of the run phase itself. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is that it might even just be unfair to say, you know, utilization of integrations and putting data to work. And I, I love the angle of protecting existing investments because I think anybody who is working with traditional security tools right now is going to you know, laugh you out of the room if you say, I have to throw these things away and rebuild from scratch. It is a journey and it takes time. And so I think if Michael, to your point, Jim, painted the utopia of everything is automated and you're talking about DevOps and DevSecOps, let's not miss the point that there are integrations along the way as you go with existing uh, security tools, but even business tools, right? ITSMs and, and, and things of that nature where there's still operational efficiencies to be had as you take your journey. Want to be cognizant of time. Um, any final words from, from either of you to, to kind of put a bow on it? I think from my perspective, the final word I would choose is don't assume zero trust is, is set and you're going to solve it in one day. It's an ongoing journey. It's a process. It's an architecture. Don't believe the myth that, you know, it's any one product, as Jim said, that's going to solve your problem. It's not, right? You need to have a strategy, execute that strategy, and be relentless and and just keep pushing on it, right? Because you're never going to get to the end of this journey. There is no end of the yellow brick road here, right? Zero trust is ongoing, and you have to you have to be the dreamer that's going to push and be relentless. I, I would uh, I would have the same sentiment, but said very differently. If you're listening to this podcast, you're listening for a reason. You're already on the journey. Embrace it. And let's let's dig deeper. Give me a call. I can help you understand all the things that we talked about. Uh, but embrace the process, regardless of what you call it, and whether or not you think zero trust is an overplayed marketing term. We'll put Jim's uh, personal cell phone number and, and email uh, on the uh, on the topic description as I well. I look forward to all the phone calls I'm about to get. He loves phone calls at one in the morning. Just there you go. So um, let's have a little bit of fun. And this is how we like to wrap up the uh, the podcasts. It's, it's a rapid fire question round. Three questions. I'll ask the question once and then both of you can answer it. Uh, absolutely nothing to do with cybersecurity whatsoever. The whole point of the game is to kind of Get a glimpse at the human that is the subject matter expert of Jim and Michael. So let's let's jump into it. When was the last time that you laughed so hard you couldn't breathe? I'll take that first one, I guess. Nikki Glaser, comedy routine just before Thanksgiving. I could not stop laughing for like 90 minutes while she was on stage. She is one hysterical human being. That's awesome. They didn't, they didn't shepherd you out of the room because you couldn't stop? No, there was about 3,000 audience members with us that vacillated between thing. aghast at what she was saying and just, you know, tries just trying to nonstop laugh and not spit up. She is a funny, funny human being. That's awesome. I think for me, George, the last time I laughed so hard that uh, I couldn't breathe was, was probably the last time I was with a big part of my team at one of the uh, trade shows that we attend. 
just about the time that COVID started up. And uh, I, yep. I really miss those. I miss the face-to-face interactions. Uh, I don't even remember what was said, but I remember one of the evenings that we were there in San Francisco, uh, we had a hoot. And uh, I woke up the next morning literally sore as if I had done sit-ups all night. Oh, that's awesome. Well, it's right around the corner, right? It is. RSA 2022. Um, if you could guest star on any show, what would it be outside of obviously Zero Trust 30? What show would it want to be? Mandalorian. There you go. Who would not want to be out there with the Baby nightly Yoda? News. What's that, Jim? I said, for me, it would not be the nightly news. <laughs> if I could stay off the news, I'd be happy. Who would I not like the Mandalorian. Out with Brogu? Come on. Baby Yoda. Would you be Baby Yoda, Yoda's handler? What, what role would you play in The Mandalorian? I don't know yet. I just want to hang out with Baby Yoda. <laughs> Let's face there it, you Frederick, you'd be a bad guy. Yes. No. No, no, not at all. That's an interesting question, George. I'm not even sure how I would answer it. Um, no, I like I like your answer. You, you didn't answer what you would want to be on. You'd answer what you don't want to be on, which is the evening news for obvious reasons. I watch a lot of uh, a lot of interesting science fiction TV programs, and you know I've been watching some of the new stuff that's come out lately, like Foundation and a few other things. Um, but you know what? Just thinking about it a little bit, one of the shows that I would really like to be on, I think that would make a whole lot of sense is. Um, Oh, and the name is escaping me. Uh, the third season is coming out. It's a Netflix show. Um, it's about wars in space between the Belters and the Martians and the Earthlings. Come on, help me. Help me. Oh, goodness, I don't know. Anyway. I don't know. It's it's a I very couldn't. technically accurate space travel show, uh, all the way down to having the idea of magnetic uh, boots. And, you know, the hallways have people walking on both upside down and right side up because there is no upside down in space. All kinds of interesting things that they've done with it. I just can't remember the name of the show, but anyway, it's it's really cool. The Expanse? It's The Expanse. That is that is actually the show. I would love to be on The Expanse because of its technical accuracy in space and, and really experience what that's like and learn some of those things as you're, as you're actually going through filming. You should be a coach on Ted Lasso, Jim. That's what you should be. <laughs> there you go. And for the audience who didn't recognize the, the, the strange voice that came in there to, to help guide Jim there, that was Dan, our, our, our producer. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Last question. You're about to face the electric chair, unfortunately. What do you request for your last meal? A recount on the jury's verdict? There you go. <laughs> oh, how, how about my grandmother's chicken matzo ball soup? Ah. Uh, a good answer you know i am I'm, I'm going uh i'm going t-bone baked potato lots of butter sour cream and chives uh and uh, and probably some vegetable that i won't really care too much about and a bottle of bourbon and a bottle of bourbon yeah there you go all right guys thank you so much this has been uh this has been really awesome and for the audience thank you for listening to today's episode you can find show notes and other episodes at appgate.com forward slash podcast And if you're not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is a production of AppGate. The opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests and may not represent the views of their organization. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and you've been listening to Zero Trust 30. That's a wrap, guys. Thanks, George. Absolutely. Appreciate you both.